Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for coming over to Satiate today, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I am Sue Van Rays, your host and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado, where I specialize in women's health, functional nutrition, digestive repair, and food psychology. I also lead women's wellness retreats both locally and internationally. You can find out all about my work at bouldernutrition.com. My intention with Satiate is to provide you with practices, nutritional insights, inspiration, and stories to satiate your body, mind, and soul. I hope you enjoy this episode of Satiate. Welcome to this next very special episode of Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. And I am so honored today to have not only a very, very special guest on the podcast, but also a long-term friend and client of mine who is now launching her first book as we speak. So I want to just take a moment to introduce to you my dear friend, Adelaide Purr. On October 18th, 2014, Adelaide was in a bike crash that would change her life. She went through the driver's side window of a car that pulled in front of her, suffering injuries that almost killed her and emotional trauma that would continue for years to come. In addition to facing the physical injuries and PTSD, Adelaide worried about how the crash would affect her ability to cope with her bipolar two. After an arduous recovery, she returned to riding, eventually qualifying to become a professional triathlete. She is an advocate for cyclist safety and strives to help others who have suffered life-threatening crashes and traumas. Adelaide lives with her husband, Kenneth, and their dog, Maybelline. Wow, I am so excited to have you here on the podcast today. And I am also very aware of this six year anniversary week of your crash. Welcome to Satiate and thank you so much for being here. And I can't wait to hear about your book. Thank you for having me, Sue. This will be great. Yeah. So why don't we start with a little bit about the actual crash that you experienced six years ago this week and the book that then came because of the crash? Sure. So I, six years ago, yep, I was on a training ride. I had been dating a cyclist, Kenneth for almost two years at that point. And we had a new puppy, Maybelline. And um, Saturdays were a great day because we worked throughout the week to go out and do longer rides. So Kenneth was in the off season from cycling. And so was I, because I had taken some time to do bike racing that year for the first year and decided that I was going to train for a triathlon. So on October 18th, I went out for what was going to be my last long ride before a race. And Kenneth went to go ride with his buddies um, in off season. So we started together in a group for the first 15 minutes. And then I split because I wanted to stay on the flat terrain and he wanted to go climbing with his buddies. And When I went on my second loop of what was going to be four loops for the day, I was on US 36, which is a two-lane highway going towards Lyons. And the last downhill before you enter Lyons is probably about 6% downhill. And there's one road that tees into the highway. And as I was going downhill, a car pulled up past the stop sign without stopping and paused right in my trajectory, if you will, downhill. And so by the time I 
saw it and was able to break. I skidded about 50 feet, um, but I couldn't, I was going downhill and I couldn't scrub all that speed and stop in time. So I basically stopped by going through the driver's side window and shattering the glass with my face instead. <laughs> and um, so, so I, I, my face was basically, the book's called Degloved. And the reason is because my face was basically ripped back from my nose to my ear from all the shadowed glass of the window. And I guess the reason or the way the book came about was that that day of the crash, Kenneth, who was again, my boyfriend at the time, he had a blog and he wrote um, about his experience, which was that he was supposed to meet me later in the day on the road. He was going to come and meet me by going opposite on the loop that I was traveling. And he came across the scene didn't initially know it was me, but was pretty sure it was just based on what people were saying. And then once he figured out it likely was me, he did not know if I was uh, alive because the injuries were so severe that they weren't sure that they were going to get me to the hospital alive. And so he had the experience of riding all the way to the hospital and um, he was still on his bike at the time. And he really, he didn't know what he was going to come across when he came to the hospital. Nobody could tell him. So he wrote his experience about that day and that blog that he wrote made it, <laughs> there were over a hundred thousand people that read it. It made it worldwide. And in addition, there was a daily camera article written about it and we worked in the bike industry. So the bike industry all found out about it. And so there was this, both this outpouring of love from people and there were a lot of people who were following along and curious what had happened to me. And here I was like living a lot of people's greatest fears when we go out and bike ride. This is what we worry about is getting hit. And so the book came about because I realized that there were a lot of people who wanted to follow up <laughs> to Kenneth's blog. There were a lot of people who wanted to know that the story turned out okay. Because you hear like, this is your greatest fear and um, and you want to hear that it gets better. And then on the flip side of it is that during recovery, when I went out, I got to share a lot of good news with people. People saw me when I was upbeat, when I had energy to be out and my physical injuries healed relatively quickly. And so what was happening behind closed doors was something very different than what people actually saw of their recovery. And it seemed almost unfair to be like, well, I'm recovering and it's great because that's not the experience that I actually had. And that's not the experience that really anyone going through trauma has. And so often it's the emotional piece of it that takes longer to recover from. And so the book's meant to help people who are also going through trauma of any kind, just understand that they're not alone when they have those bad days behind closed doors. It's wonderful to hear that there's such diverse purpose to this book. Um, one of the things I love about your title and your, well, I love your, um, your tagline, which is every scar has a story. And it's interesting because the scars that we carry, many of them are physical and yet many of them are emotional and we don't really see or maybe even validate each other's emotional scars in our world the way that I think we could to create more in-depth and true healing. Um, so I really feel that your story can touch so many people, whether they've ever been on a, a bicycle or not, that really when we go through something that is multi-layered in our, in our experience. We learn a lot, we grow a lot, we you know, really get to understand that, that Scar's story really does go so deep. The um, fact that I have a 
physical scar and that my story was so widely publicized. So I couldn't really hide from it. <laughs> so by the time I woke up five days later in a coma, like everyone knew there was no like putting it back in the box. But I think having that experience has made it very interesting because it's given me this inside world to other people's trauma. I don't think I attract people that are necessarily permanently wounded people, but I attract people who have wounds because they're willing to share them with me because there's like this level of trust that they have that I will understand some aspect of their story in a way that others might not. And the truth of it is that others probably would understand parts of their story, but but there's this trust that I understand it because my scar is visible and my story is visible. So they know I've been through something relatable. And that's been interesting to see how many people open up and share stories that they don't share with everyone, <laughs> but we all have them. Absolutely. We all have them. And there is just so much richness there that I'm hearing from you that opens up this door of vulnerability with other people, which is why one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this book launch for you is that there is going to be a ripple effect um, in, in, in the readers and how people translate your story and relate it to their own different experiences and their own personal scars. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I would love to hear a bit more of, and I'll just read this very short little excerpt, but I've read it a lot um, over the last few months. Um, And I I think it says a lot. So tell us a little bit more about this. When the red Fiat pulled out in front of you and you squeezed your brakes so hard that you left 50 foot skids along the the highway. Um, The last thing you remember is being lifted into the ambulance and someone saying her face is peeling off. Tell us a little bit more about that. That one's really interesting. Um, it's the only thing I remember from the day of the crash to the point where when I woke up five days later in the hospital after two surgeries and they brought me out of sedated coma, that's what I was, I was able to write. Um, I was not able to talk, but I was able to write. And some of the first things I was writing about were like red Fiat and blood and my face being peeled off, but I didn't actually know I had hit the car. (laughs) Just just like, um, because I, I, my memory basically went from whenever my wheel skidded out, um, from braking so hard that, yeah, my memory went out except for this one glimpse of being lifted into the ambulance. And because of that, I mean, I don't know. That's such weird information to get. Like, what do you do with that? You hear it, your face is peeled off. And then you wake up five days later, you know, I like, well, I'm not looking in the mirror. That's for one (laughs) Two, like, what's, you know, what's the recovery? What's it going to look like? There's so much that you just, it's a weird statement to hear because we don't know what that means when we hear it generally. I'm sure there's EMTs and people that are in the medical world that like get that and understand what that looks like. But I didn't even really, I knew one person who was just going through something similar. I had met him once prior to his crash, um, but I didn't know what he was going through in terms of his recovery. And I didn't even realize other people in the world that maybe I had seen with scars on their face And now I've since watched um, like The Wire is a great show about Baltimore and it, but it has like two main characters that both have huge scars on their face. And now I get it. I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe their face was or wasn't peeled off, but they had serious trauma to their face at one point. But at that moment, it was just this really weird sentence to hear and to have to hold on to and not understand the full consequences of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I 
as you know, read um, yes. a lot of your manuscript. And I want to just share that the very first day I was reading it, I was sitting on the front porch, you know, early in the morning, sipping on some coffee with my dog, kind of mellow, easygoing morning, reading what you had sent me before the book was anywhere and really near published, but when your manuscript was final. And I was so surprised by my own emotional response to your book. And I'm sure that a lot of that has to do with the fact that I, I know you and I knew you before the crash for many years. I saw you right after your crash when you came home from the hospital. I helped you through a lot of the different things you were going through um, in your healing journey. But I just want to say for our listeners and for you that you evoked so much emotion in me that I had tears streaming down my face within five minutes of reading your first chapter. And I think, you know, we all can relate to going through challenging times in one way or another, whether they come from a physical trauma, an accident, a loss, grief, you know, various heartbreaks, various things that we go through in our lives. And I just, I really just want you to know that that, that experience for me um, in, that, in reading such a short amount of the book and having such a strong emotional response was just really telling that this story and this message needs to be read and needs to be heard. I feel like there's just some component in there and your ability to, you know, really connect with your readers that shows that, you know, a lot of us have gone through and will understand and will relate to some of the things you write about. I, I just, I was blown away. Thank you. And you're welcome. And one of the pieces, I know we have a lot of things to cover, but one of the pieces I want to hear about, and one of the places that really brought up a lot of tears for me, and some of it were tears of joy, but was the part about what happened when you woke up in the hospital and, you know, what happened with Kenneth, that that's a piece I'd love to hear. Yeah. So Kenneth, um, he was the first person to hear about the crash. He was, he was the first person to respond, um, out of family and friends and, like I mentioned earlier, he came across the scene. He knows what the driver looks like. And he was on his bike and had to ride about seven miles to the hospital without knowing whether I was alive or not. And so he had seven miles to think about the two years we spent together and what it would be like to not have me around. And so he proposed to me the first night in the hospital and I was in a coma. And I squeezed his hand and I have no memory of it, which I guess is okay because I think he knew that I wanted to get married anyway. So I guess I didn't really have to be awake and present to answer for him to know it was a legit response. Um, but by the time I woke up, five days had passed. And so a lot of stuff that I was still coming to terms with as I woke up or still figuring out, I still had to learn what was going on. Um, the rest of my family, Kenneth included, had five days to process and think about it. And Kenneth already knew that we were engaged. And so by the time he came around to asking me at a point where I was coherent enough to remember it, um, it was, I believe, Thursday. And he came in the room and we were talking about his dad being in the waiting room. And then all of a sudden he was like, will you marry me? And and I said, yes. And big probably two inch letters, all caps across this paper that I'd been writing on. Um, but we were in very different places because Kenneth had already felt like we were engaged for five days and made up his mind and figured out what was going on and knew what his fiance looked like. And here I was laying in the hospital bed, had no clue what was going on. And, um, and it was, you know, my first time actually hearing it. And so I was, through the roof about it. Um, if I, I think I wrote in the, in the book itself that if I had not been just tied up in the hospital room with stuff sticking out of my arms, I probably would have just jumped up and run around the hospital. I see you being like, I'm engaged. 
it was really thrilling and it was a really bright spot and it gave me something very hopeful to look forward to. So instead of worrying about the future in negative terms in the hospital, which I'm sure I did, I know I did, but I also had this like very concrete, when I get better, I'll have a wedding. And that was something really fun to look forward to. It was exciting. So just to be clear, you were still not talking when all this was going on. So your, your yes was on a post-it note. Is that correct? It was on, yeah, it was on, they had started giving me, it started with a piece of paper and a Sharpie when I woke up to see if it would work. And then I started writing and then I started writing a lot. So then they brought in a pad of paper and then they realized Sharpie bleeds through and is really hard to read. And so they gave me a pen over the course of the days and can see the progress of my writing, but for the first, probably Thursday, when Thursday through Sunday, I was only writing. So all these conversations were one-way conversations where somebody would talk to me and I would hand back my, my writing to them for them to read. I'm sure that you being able to write was such a gift to your family and to Kenneth for, you know, being able to communicate with you. Wow. I love this love story a lot. <laughs> it's a, it's a good one. I think a lot of people, it changed my mind about engagements. I think a lot of people get engaged when things are going really well. And I have to say, I think getting engaged when things are at their worst has helped us immensely through marriage. And it's just a really cool way to turn something that's so awful around. Uh, I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. So one of the things we, that I wanted to talk about today is, you know, since we had been working with your health and your nutrition and your, um, you know, kind of overall holistic wellness together for many years, when you woke up in the hospital, you had a stomach tube in and your jaw was broken. And so I know that nutrition was a challenge. And also you figured out some very innovative ways to stay nourished, which was also not always easy for you before your crash. So can you talk a little bit about how that progressed over time and what you learned? Yes. So that's true. You and I, when we go way back in terms of health and nutrition and you helping me with all of this. So when I was in the hospital, at first they decided that I needed a stomach tube. And then they realized after I woke up that I could probably get a lot of nutrition as long as it was, what was it? Mechanically processed, essentially. I think uh, blended really well in the Vitamix. And this was great because I actually got a Vitamix out of this whole thing because everyone realized I wasn't going to be able to eat. And so I wasn't allowed to eat solid food for five weeks after the crash. So initially they were giving me smoothies in the hospital. And then when it came time to ask to go home, one of the main concerns was that whether I would be getting enough protein. Protein is something I've probably struggled with all of my life because I prefer carbs. <laughs> and so it was good to have Kenneth as support for that. But we would put, I think before the crash, I would often have smoothies in the morning and I would put in one scoop of protein. I wouldn't put in two scoops of protein because that was just more calories. And somehow that seemed unnecessary. And I'm just a female. And I just felt like putting in two scoops of protein was excessive and I just didn't want to do it. And then after the crash, it was like, put in at least two scoops of protein. Cause this is the reason you were allowed to go home was cause you made the agreement with a surgeon that you need more protein. And it was amazing for not doing anything. My body was just exhausted from the healing internally. So I really did need all of the, 
all the nutrition I could get, but in particular, that that was the agreement was the protein is the building block to let your body heal and everything and anything went into the Vitamix. And it's amazing what blends in a Vitamix. Um, I think at one point we had like a soup with sausage and we blended it up perfectly in the Vitamix, like things that you wouldn't, apple pie blends great in a Vitamix, things you wouldn't normally blend um, just to ensure. And now I just pay more attention to that protein's a good thing and more protein is not going to hurt me. And I just have a different awareness of it, of its importance in my daily nutrition. So it sounds like there was a turning point for you from old eating behaviors to understanding because you were really wanting to heal and needed to heal what you actually needed to do differently. And has that carried on since? Yes, I definitely think so. I pay more attention to getting protein in my meals and I I think I I think it was just an interesting switch of like I had been an athlete for so long and so I always <laughs> It's also really weird. So I'd been an athlete for so long that like people would be like, oh, I skipped breakfast to me. And I mean, I remember coworkers saying that and me just like not even understanding how that would happen because <laughs> I just always was eating. And it was like this weird break where I was in a coma for several days. So I wasn't really eating. And then when I woke up, I couldn't, you know, it was like, juice or something through a stomach tube where I wasn't tasting it and eating for this five week period of time was not this joyous thing for the most part, except for blended apple pie and ice cream. But like it, and that, that was okay. Cause I had lost so much weight in the hospital and like whatever calories I could get, but it was this weird transition where for like this brief period of time, my body wasn't hungry in the same way. And so I finally started to understand what it meant to like not want to eat. And I came from binge eating from, you know, why I met you was because I was binge eating early on in my years. And so my tendency has always been to overeat. And it was like this pause button during the crash where I didn't have that chance to overeat for, especially for trauma. Like here I was going through something that, was really emotionally challenging and my emotional response to hard things in the past had been to binge eat. And I didn't really have that option. Um, especially initially in the hospital, it was like, what were you going to do? Put more, ask for more like smoothie into your stomach tube. Like that's not emotionally satisfying, uh, way to binge. <laughs> so I didn't have that opportunity. And so it was this weird reset where like now even, um, I'm less likely since the crash to turn to food to help with my emotions. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. So many little like caveats of things that you learned about yourself that shifted and perspectives and priorities and all of these things that, you know, it's when our, basically our life flashes before us, it's, you know, it's natural to go through these transformations that in your case really have stuck around and they've really taught you a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me at the beginning of chapter nine in your book, you wrote on the outside, bipolar and my crash may seem complete opposites. One caused me to gain 30 pounds and the other caused me to drop 12. My crash was very external from the injuries to the publicity of it, whereas very few people even knew I was dealing with bipolar. And while there could be a long list of ways they differ, the challenges of the crash mimicked the challenges of bipolar. So I know we have known each other since before you were even diagnosed with bipolar. And I'd love to know a little bit more about what you mean 
that the challenges of the crash mimicked the challenges that you previously had experienced with your bipolar diagnosis? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the interesting things that I feel like the listeners should know is that I used to come into your office and while you initially helped me a lot with nutrition, what it came down to at one point when I was 20, I don't know how many years ago this was 26. So several, several years ago, the conversation turned to like, how do we get me to the psychiatrist, which was a really daunting thing because I'd had some previously terrible experiences with them. And so you actually helped me get to the psychiatrist and sat through the meeting with me so that we could figure out kind of what I was going through because it was not a normal state of life. And so I really owe it to you that I even have that awareness that I have bipolar and um, just knowing that I have it has made it so much more, has made it so much easier to manage and cope with and thrive from, I guess, just the awareness that I, that I have it and what that means. So for me, bipolar switches between hypomania where somebody who doesn't know me very well might not even notice that I'm on the higher end of energy, but, um, I remember being in your office there again one day and you were like, you're talking really fast. <laughs> and it was like, oh, yep, I'm on a roll. I'm, I'm feeling good and I'm hypomanic. But a lot of creative things come from that. A lot of big challenges I take on that maybe I shouldn't, like starting a book, um, come from that place. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a it can be in place that has anxiety with it, but it's often a creative good space to be in. And then on the flip side of it is this depression that comes about. And the way it was described to me is atypical depression. So I don't always feel depressed always, but there's also a really extreme lethargy from it and sometimes paranoia and things feeling that things will never get better. And so the crash mimicked more of what I experienced with depression side of bipolar. And that is just a emotional exhaustion from all of it. And also the fear of not doing things correctly to aid my recovery. And basically what, what happened was I was sitting in the hospital and here were all these injuries that I didn't really understand. But my fear was really, is this going to set me off into a depressive state? And a lot of my coping mechanisms that I had come together to figure out how to, to help with bipolar, such as, well, one, the nutrition, you helped me a lot with nutrition. And we both know that when my nutrition is good, my bipolar is better managed and exercise was another one. And so biking was really important to my mental health and sleep was another one. And so here I was in the hospital and I was being woken up at all hours of the night so they could like take my blood pressure and do other treatments. And I was on different medication for pain that I didn't know what I was on. And I didn't know how I was going to interact with the bipolar medication, which I hadn't been on for several days during a coma. So I didn't know how that was going to play out. And Meanwhile, I knew I wasn't going to be able to exercise for a long time. And so all these fears of like, oh my gosh, I have to manage bipolar with here are all my coping mechanisms I have for bipolar. And then the crash was starting to take them all away. I was like, well, that one's not going to work. That one's not going to work. That one's not going to work. And so I had this really big fear that um, they were, that the crash was going to cause bipolar to be worse. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what happened over time? I come to find out that I think I'm better initially when, when something bad strikes, I can rally. It's that like hypomanic state. I can rally together and like push through, but over time, um, the exhaustion kind of hits from being a little too high to react to something. And so initially I was reacting to the crash and dealing with it better than I thought I would, but, um, that quickly changed. And initially I had all this support and I was in the hospital. And so I was kind of taken away from the real world. I say in the book that I think the real struggle was when I went home. I imagine that's probably the case for a lot of people leaving the hospital. In the hospital, you have this constant level of support. And then and then when you get home the first few days, like Ken, it wasn't working. My mom was still here. And then people have to go back to work and you kind of, and so they ask you when you leave a hospital, at least in my case, whether you could, you know, the, the, the bar for getting discharged from the hospital is like, can you take care of yourself for four hours by yourself while you're at home? And like physically, yeah, that was fine. I could sit there and take care of myself. Chances are I was going to take a nap, like do a puzzle, really didn't have a lot of strenuous things to take care of myself for a few hours on my own. But the emotional piece of it, like, can you be at home by yourself with all these injuries, feeling bad, looking around the house at how messy it is, knowing you can't fully clean it because you're too tired? Like, can you deal with that? Like, can you deal with watching everyone else go out the door for exercise or to work or do everything that you can't do? And the answer is like, no, <laughs> nope. Um, so it played out a lot in the months, the winter months when I was recovering. And then I think the other challenge is that the legal aspect of the crash was extremely overwhelming emotionally. And so I kind of had these reoccurrences where it was just a level of stress that I wasn't anticipating or wasn't prepared for. The insurance medical bills. I also tell the listener, I remember a conversation with you where you were like telling me that I couldn't walk in the house after opening a bill from the mail and start screaming about how mad I was about the bill to Kenneth because Kenneth had nothing to do with it. And he wasn't the person that needed to hear how mad I was. And that I really had to keep my anger in check because <laughs> the insurance adjuster wasn't listening to me screaming. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, just like understanding where your anger or fear or emotions are being directed and who's, who's on the receiving end. And unfortunately, Kenneth was on the receiving end of way too much of that because he was the good guy in all of it. So. Right. I'm sure. Such tricky times, such yeah. tricky times for so many reasons. What I'm wondering, I have another question for you. And that is that you talk about being back to racing as early as the spring after your crash but clearly the recovery wasn't complete, even though you were able to go back to sports. Um, so tell me a little bit about what was going on that inhibited your recovery and what did you learn here? Like your body started feeling better, but there was many layers of healing to do, correct? Yes. And I will say that um, I was on a ride with somebody on Saturday and she was talking about how she had had some back surgery that was pretty intense years ago. And then she went back in and had to go in for some small, I can't remember what it was, small, completely unrelated surgery. And she was like, the thought of surgery just terrified me. And, you know, that's like a form of trauma. <laughs> and so what happened was in the spring, I had an appointment to go in to get laser surgery to help fix, reduce my scarring, I guess. And I went in and I took the pain medication that they gave me and I sat there and then they gave me this like sheet of things to do after you get out of this outpatient surgery or whatnot, um, laser, laser treatment. And so they gave me this recovery sheet and it was like, you're going to have to put Crisco on your face and it's going to feel like sunburn. And I called my bride, who was my brother-in-law and I was like, come pick me up because 
this is not, I'm not going through this. And so I was lucky in that I had the choice of what to my recovery would look like in some respects, because after those initial surgeries, everything else was pretty much cosmetic, cosmetic to the face. <laughs> so, I mean, it is something that I thought a lot about because it's my first appearance towards people. Um, but I had that choice. And so here I was, I decided to turn down that laser surgery because I was going to prioritize getting back to racing because that was more important to me. And I didn't want the emotional trauma of going through another surgery and another recovery. So in that sense, I've been lucky to have kind of that choice to make. Whereas some people with surgeries, you have to go back in for the next surgery. When I look at my face in the mirror, that's one aspect of recovery. And I think I came to terms with that pretty early, what I was going to look like in my decision to end further or future surgeries and just leave my face as is, I guess you could say, with the scars that I have. But the other piece of it is every time I go out and I ride, I'm at a heightened state of alertness that somebody else might not be at. And so initially, I just thought that was like a push through and persevere kind of thing. And then two years later, I was in my own crash of my own accord by hitting a tar bump while I had one hand off the bars drinking a bottle. And so my own fault, nobody else was involved or responsible. And it sent me into this huge PTSD reaction where I basically dissociated from the event. And after that, it took me a lot longer. I rode indoors a lot more and I pay a lot more attention to what my anxiety level is going out the door. So if one day I'm just not excited to ride, I kind of have to listen to that now. So in a way you're trusting yourself more than you probably did before. Yes. It's definitely a knowing thing, like an inner knowing, which is hard because to race at high levels, there's just a lot of pressure to, you see what everyone else is doing and you want to follow suit. And it's difficult to kind of remember to set your own course through all of it, but that's, I have to, cause it's just not good for my mental health otherwise. Hmm, definitely. So I just think that this would be a really good time to segue. You know, a lot of people in the world right now are going through various kinds of trauma with the pandemic. And a lot of people have lost people. A lot of people have been sick. A lot of people have had economic challenges and, there's been, you know, just in the last few weeks here in Colorado, many people have lost their homes to the wildfires. There's trauma going on all over the world right now for different reasons than your crash, clearly. But I'm sure that there's people listening that can relate to feeling traumatized in many ways and anxiety ridden and fear has been strong for people over the last six, seven months since things got really crazy here in on planet earth. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective and from everything you've gone through, what are some of those things that you learned through your healing that could potentially help other people go through yeah. that? That's a great question. I do feel more prepared for the pandemic having gone through my crash because we want to, we live in a world where things happen on a schedule. We often wear a watch. We know what time it is. We have calendars to keep things going and we have plans and we have goals. And that's really good. And you never know at what point on what day somebody's just going to slash that calendar that you have, rip it up and say like, too bad you're in the hospital. This is going on. Your family members got this going on and, and, 
I think it's really important to be okay with a pause, <laughs> to be okay with the idea that is well, goals and timelines are really good. That what's what's most important is always the people around you, your community, and the health, your health. Like um, my dad, since finding out that I had bipolar, so often I'll call him. And maybe I call him at a wrong time where he's busy or something, but he'll still pick up the phone and he'll just say, is everything okay first? And then if everything's okay, then he'll be like, well, I'm in a meeting or something's going on and can I call you in five minutes? Or or he'll have time and he'll just ask how I'm doing. And I'll say, oh, I'm doing great. Like things are going really well. And he'll just respond, well, that's good because the most important thing you have is your health. And no matter what else you have, like the only thing that's, top priority, number one. And I think I've had to know that for a while because A, of bipolar and B, because I've had my health completely ripped out from underneath me with the crash. And so my expectations kind of had to start over after that. But um, that's number one is your health. And if you're in a healthy and good place, then right now, I think it's really important to be supportive of people who aren't. And then it's also really important. I've seen a lot of people, myself absolutely included, where we all go through these waves. I feel like in the pandemic, where they're like, all right, we're doing all right. We're like sailing along, okay. And then like just life for a brief period of time or maybe not so brief period of time becomes too much and it becomes overwhelming. And I feel like we've all hit that point in the last seven months. And it's important to say, I'm not in a healthy enough place to be there for others and to put up boundaries and just say like, I I want to help, but I have to honor myself first. And right now I'm not in a good enough place to be there as a support for you. It doesn't mean I don't care about you. It doesn't mean I don't love you, but, but I can't be that person. Cause I've seen that too, where, um, and to bring it back to my crash, you know, Kenneth had to do a really good job taking care of himself because every day he had to come home and he had to spend the majority of the day taking care of me. But it was so important that he had those moments where he took care of himself so that he could be there for me. My mom, after flying out, became very run down because she was just in this constant mom mode and it was too much. And we sent her home because we were like, you need to go rest. (laughs) You aren't helpful anymore. And so kind of just knowing those shifts in energy. Definitely. It's like that filling up your own cup first or taking care of yourself first, because then you have more to give. Um, And I think it's a challenging time for people right now to really model that because there's a lot of chaos in the world. And I've seen And I've talked to many of my friends, many of my clients about the same thing. And it's just like having healthy boundaries, even though there's a lot of work to be done in this world right now, a lot on a global scale and in our communities and in our families. And there's just a lot of people struggling. We really can't give the way that we um, need to when our well is dried up personally. So that's a really great reminder. Thank you for that. Yeah. I would love to hear for the listeners just a little bit more about how we can get your book, where it's found, and, you know, kind of the, the how to find Adelaide message. Yes, absolutely. So I am a huge shop local person. Um, so if you're in Boulder or nearby, Boulder Bookstore is carrying it in person and soon Inkberry Books, which is in Niwot, and Full Cycle, which is a bookstore, should also have copies. I think that list will grow, but that's where they'll be right now. Nationally, it's actually available at most independent bookstores. It's just not necessarily on their shelf, but you can order it online. So if you go to Powell's or any of the local bookshops nationally, they most likely carry it through their website at the very least. 
And then of course it's available on places like Barnes and Noble and Amazon. But those are my my plug for shop independent local bookstore. Um, and you can find me, my website is my name, www.adelaideper.com. So um, that has some blogs about my recovery and some additional stories that aren't in the book. Awesome. And Instagram. Oh, and Instagram. Um, Oh my goodness. So the cool thing about Instagram is that Kenneth and I spend a lot of time together. So we just share our Instagram account because neither of us are really successful at social media, but we have been sharing a bunch about the book. Again, it has a lot of additional things that are kind of supplemental to the book. And I have no idea what our, our tag is um, Adelaide underscore Kenneth for Instagram. Adelaide, one D, Kenneth, two N's, two T's, right? Yeah. <laughs> I had to check myself the other day when I was, um, when I was responding to one of your posts. <laughs> um, great. Well, I really hope this book launch goes well because it is a much needed story for people to hear and learn from and, you know, connect with. And I can't wait to get my paper copy in the next couple of days. And I am just so so glad to have you on the podcast and I'm so proud of you for all the work you've put into your own healing in so many ways and I just feel super grateful that I was able to be seeing you and watching you through this journey it was such an honor for me to really just see how resilient you are and how strong you are and how much you've really taken this to heart and learned from it and it's just been a wonderful thing to see so I'm so proud of you thank you Sue and again you you were really a large part of this from from well before the crash even just helping me with this uh, self-awareness with the nutrition with the mental health awareness and it's been such an important journey to have you by my side for so I really appreciate all your support thank you and thanks for being here today Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode of Satiate Today. Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support in cultivating all the health and happiness that you so deserve. Thank you so much for being part of the Boulder Nutrition Community.